Let's continue our series on taking your faith private. This is our second week. I've told you that I've kind of almost flipped this series around in that I've told you up front what I'm driving towards. I'm not hiding the ball at all in this series because I think that's uh, too easy. One of the reasons I'm not doing that probably is because we are so steeped in some of the things we're talking about that we might not recognize them. So uh, let me just review last week real fast. I said, why spend time in this series? Uh, The four reasons I gave were, we're called to speak the truth as Christians. We're called to be ambassadors for Christ, uh, to be witnesses to him in the world. But meanwhile, while we're called to do those first two things, we constantly feel this pressure to be silent or live our faith privately. Um, And most of us aren't really aware of where that pressure is coming from. We haven't put any thought into it. That's what this series is meant to do, to kind of wake us up a little bit and say, this is going on. Uh, It's been going on for a long time. It's just most of us haven't paid attention. And... uh, Subtly, I think most of us have accepted many of the premises that drive this movement. Um, I hear it in our conversations. There's a subtext to it. That's why we're doing it. I also did something I'd never done before, which is I summarized at the beginning of the series what I believed about it. So that there wouldn't be any way we could miss this along the way. What I said last week is there's a growing pressure in society for Christians to remain silent and hide their faith. While some of us occasionally encounter this pressure, many of us are unaware of just how far it's spread or how deeply it's ingrained in our culture. Some of us have unconsciously bought into the belief that we should keep our faith to ourselves. And most would mistakenly conclude that they came to this belief on their own. This pressure is not accidental, nor is it naturally evolving, and it's not something new. Uh, It's been carefully planned and has roots going back like six decades. But its greatest effects have yet to be felt. That's why I'm talking about it. Because I feel like we're just going to start to see it. And this pressure to keep our faith private will only increase during our lifetime. So I'm putting that out there almost like just revealing all my cards right up front so that when I'm saying things, uh, there's no way that you can miss some of them. Look for those themes and some of the things we're talking about. Now, I also defined some terms for us last week like stigma, prejudice, and passing. I won't go into the whole definition again. But just remember, stigma is kind of societally enforced. It's that place where you give someone a discrediting Uh, attribute. You kind of discredit them for something and it is deemed to be a deviation from the norm. I contrast that with prejudice where you just might have a prejudice against a group. Stigma is more societally enforced. Sure, there's some overlap. And I said look for the pressure, which is what sociologists call passing. Like when we try to conceal our identity. Maybe you conceal your identity as a Christian or you fabricate one where you become a different kind of Christian or you only selectively reveal certain things about your Christianity, or avoidance. You just kind of avoid it unless you're caught red-handed. And I've done that. I told you in one of the first sessions we did, even before last week, that somebody just asked me, like, what are you doing this weekend? And I was just carefully avoiding mentioning uh, that I was going to be speaking at my church, (laughs) because that would just, you know, out me right there uh, as a believing Christian. And that's odd. I mean, that troubled me. The minute it happened, it troubled me. Like, what just happened? I've known this person for 14 years. Why, why was I so hesitant to just say something like that? Uh, it just seems so complicated, uh, but so unwarranted. So think about that. And, of course, we had some fun last week with all different kinds of socially imposed stigmas. We had fun playing with them and talking about them, bring those in mind. Um, I think most of you really enjoyed the Big Mac stigma for some reason, you know. Anybody go to McDonald's this week? Anyone? One person, proudly, like the way you raised your hand, I was like, <laughs> you're like, you were like almost like proud to have like 
heard about that stigma and then somehow went against it, right? I laughed because I recommended we go and they're like, McDonald's, and I just thought about it. <laughs> yeah, it's a great social studies experiment. It's when people say, where do you want to go? Just go, McDonald's, and see. Joseph, you went to McDonald's? Yeah, I sat here last night, played Dominion afterwards, had to get food on the way home and stopped by McDonald's on the way home last night. <laughs> it doesn't count when you go by yourself. You must do it with other people. <laughs> Because everybody does it by themselves. I mean, there's just certain things we keep to ourselves and don't tell others about, and McDonald's is one of them. Uh, but so, so if, you're, if you're really going to get credit for it, you must get others to go uh, and look really excited about it, because that'll freak them out even more. You know, the, the more excited you are about it, it is kind of like standing in the elevator and counting the numbers backwards. Right, right. Because then you hide behind the, oh, I'm going for the uh, playground. Uh, I'm, I'm there because they have a... Indoor playground. That's, that's the reason I'm here eating this Big Mac. Um, yeah, so we had fun with those things. Okay. Let me just remind you of a few more things. I am committed to reading some of these to you uh, because I'm trying to increase your awareness. Tonight, you might say, as you should if you're thinking with me, why are we covering the information? We did a pretty good job last week. Why are we covering more of the same topic? Tonight, what I want you to get out is I want you to identify how tolerance is sold to you so that you can at least learn to deconstruct it when you hear the argument. That's the goal tonight. Be up front again. I want you to be able to think for yourself when someone says, uh, you're intolerant or Christianity is intolerant or this is intolerant or we should tolerate this. Just what are we talking about when we come to tolerance? Uh, it is a very real goal. I'm not just giving you information tonight. I am trying to equip you. I might even say arm you with the ability to think critically when someone is trying to push the stigma even further and maybe even onto you. But let me just remind you of some of these stigmas about Christians, uh, just so you know what's out there. Here's one. The ACLU filed a lawsuit against a county stating that two of the county's holiday displays were unconstitutional. One of the displays was a nativity scene. The other one was a menorah right next to a Christmas tree. The Supreme Court held that the menorah in front of the city was a seasonal display and did not violate the First Amendment, but the nativity scene did. Here's another one. Firefighters in Glenview, Illinois, were forced to take down their station's Christmas lights after neighbors complained of being offended. When a pastor in Chandler, Arizona, complained that a public library display excluded Christmas and only included Hanukkah and Kwanzaa, the library took down the entire display rather than add information about Christmas. In 2011, a federal court held that the cross on Mount Soledad in La Jolla, some of you have probably seen it, gives onlookers the impression that the government endorses religion and violates the Establishment Clause. The cross was put up in 1952 as a war memorial. In 2005, the cross was designated a veterans memorial and was moved to federal property. The lawsuit was filed by the ACLU on behalf of the Jewish war veterans in the United States of America as well as some San Diego residents. The Ninth Circuit held that the Mount Soledad Veterans Memorial violated the Establishment Clause and ordered it to be removed. It's still there, if some of you know, because it went all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States who finally stayed the removal. Contrast that with this one. The city of San Jose installed and maintained a sculpture of, oh, I'm not going to say this right, Quetzalcoatl, an Aztec god to commemorate the Mexican and Spanish contributions to the city's culture. When people began to bring flowers and burn incense at the sculpture, citizens filed suit claiming that the sculpture violated the Establishment Clause. 
but the court said that the sculpture could remain. The United States Postal Service honored Mother Teresa, of course we know who she is, a Nobel Peace Prize recipient, a memorial stamp for her humanitarian relief efforts. The Freedom From Religion Foundation criticized the stamp as a violation of the United States Postal Service regulations by honoring a religious figure and called on members of its organization to boycott the stamp and begin a letter campaign to expose the darker side of Mother Teresa. <laughs> I don't know what that would be. I mean, even if there is a darker side, and there's a darker side to all of us, uh, pick on somebody else other than Mother Teresa. Los Angeles County was threatened with a lawsuit if the county did not remove a cross from the county seal. The county succumbed to the ACLU's pressure and decided to remove the cross. The cross had been on the seal since 1957, along with a cow, a tuna fish, a Spanish galleon, the Hollywood Bowl, and the goddess Pomono. The cross was put on the seal originally because Catholic missionaries, of course, were the first in the area, and that was to memorialize that fact. So all of the county seals had to be changed, all of the letterhead, everything changed to remove that from the seal. Yes, Chris? So thinking critically, I know we're talking about trends, but like objectively, obviously that's picking out all the bad examples. Like are there, if you had to get like a metric out of it, like what is the trend? Like 50% of the time, 100% of the time that, that Christian Christianity is being effectively stigmatized to a level that legally it's being removed? Or is it like 100% of the time? Is it 10% of the time? Like what if someone were to ask me, well, yeah, you're only reading bad examples. That's a good question. The trend depends on the area you're looking at. So to be you know, clear, what I mean is, for example, if you're looking at a whole area of law, there's whole areas of law about uh, crush scenes, nativity scenes, right? The percentage in that area is going to be different, for example, than the percentage of lawsuits over seals, county seals and city seals, right? So let's say in city seals, you might lose half the time, Okay. In nativity scenes and crush scenes, you might lose all the time. Uh, in Christmas trees, there's a whole section of lawsuits just about holiday trees or Christmas trees or holiday displays, like the lights here about the fire department. I would say that's an extreme example. Most holiday tree cases have been upheld as long as they're not related to Christmas as a religious holiday. But Christmas as a, what do we celebrate, as a commercial holiday or whatever it is, a national U.S., you know, devoid of any Christianity-based secular holiday, you could call it. So it depends on the area. Like wartime memorial crosses are a big area of litigation now, and they're tending to lose most of the time. You might think it's silly to think there's whole areas of law just about a wartime cross or a county seal, but remember last week I said it takes a lot of effort to have these cases. I mean, you've really got to go out of your way to sue cities all over the country to get a seal with a cross removed off of it, right? But that's exactly what's happening. Joseph? Um, is there a regional component to this too? Because the, we know the Ninth Circuit is super liberal and pretty much anti-religion. In other areas of the country, does it go in other ways? Yeah, it's true that the Ninth Circuit is the most liberal, and it's going to be the most overturned circuit, for sure. But I think what we should pay attention to, what's noteworthy, is this is not just happening uh, in an isolated circuit or in an isolated part of the country. It's happening everywhere in states and circuits across the country, and that's what we should be paying attention to. Uh, it should uh, you know, get our attention that it's happening everywhere. Some of the definitions you see on the screen here I've taken from D.A. Carson's book, The 
intolerance of tolerance. And one of the things he would point out in trying to deconstruct a charge that we're being intolerant is that the definition has changed. Traditionally, the older definition of tolerance was just to tolerate other views being expressed, to tolerate uh, the existence of varying views. And that he would point out that somehow that's changed. There's a quote that's commonly attributed to Voltaire, although no one's really sure that he says it. It's, I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. And that's how we understood tolerance. I mean, you could take an example like a white supremacist group. I mean, as much as we hated their views or disapproved of what they said, we tolerated their right to have a public rally. We would go to court, and the ACLU often did, to allow them to have a parade or a public march to express their views. No one supported those views, but we tolerated them, and we allowed their free expression. And Carson would point out that sometime in the later 20th century, that definition changed. Now, the newer definition of tolerance requires that we accept all views as equally true, that we avoid offending anyone, uh, that we actually tolerate everything except intolerance, which becomes very circular. But notice we've shifted from just accepting that there are varying views or allowing them to kind of an oppressive requirement that we accept them as true. And that puts anyone who says, no, I don't believe that all views or all opinions are true. Uh, that makes us intolerant under this new definition. Uh, intolerance has then been redefined. It's to oppose anyone's belief or opinion. I mean, think about that for a moment. Uh, you can't really have a free flow of dialogue without opposing someone's belief or opinion. Uh, intolerance just means to believe that your beliefs are true, uh, that your beliefs are correct, and that somehow now makes you intolerant just by saying, I believe that there are certain beliefs that are true and there are certain ones that aren't. So really, you could say that anyone who stands against this new definition of tolerance has been defined as being intolerant. We've got to know that uh, as we're analyzing this claim of intolerance. And I think there is a real irony here, especially with the involvement of groups like the ACLU, a group that fought so hard for the uh, public expression of views like white supremacists, who now are on the forefront of trying to eradicate any public expression of faith, especially Christianity. And of course, a whole host of groups have joined them with a dedicated mission to make sure that there just really isn't any public expression of faith, hence the title of our series, Taking our faith private. Now, now, where did some of this come from? I mean, you know, for a long time, the United States was primarily made up of different denominations of Christians. So maybe for a long time, it was easy to uh, have public expressions of Christianity and then to tolerate under the old definition, uh, other people's rights to have other beliefs and to allow them to be expressed. But you know, I would say starting in the middle of the 20th century, as we saw more and more diversity of faiths, you could see that this could serve a utilitarian purpose. You know, you could say, you know, after a while, uh, we might just have too much offense if people uh, express their faith publicly. Uh, it's going to create disunity. So maybe what we need to do is just get everybody to keep their faith to themselves. That way, nobody is made to feel uncomfortable. And under the newer definition of tolerance, of course, it becomes intolerant not to accept other views as true. 
But think about that for a moment. I mean, what does it mean to have a faith? What does it mean to believe in something if you have to believe that everybody else's belief is also true? I mean, doesn't that negate faith? It negates having a religion or believing in something the way that we would think of faith, that you say, well, I believe in my faith, but I have to also believe that every other faith is true. I mean, how would that be faith? And I also think that faith and maybe philosophy gets singled out for special treatment. I mean, go to a university, you know, a place where we're supposed to exchange differing ideas and where Christianity and other religious expressions being shut out the most. But go to a university and go into any other department. Go to the math department. Uh, go to the engineering department, go to the sciences, go to chemistry and go to physics and say, you know, I don't think this is the way to solve the proof. We can solve it any way that I want to. And you have to accept that as true. Or this is the way you construct a building. I'm not going to follow your mathematical models on how a weight bearing wall should stand up. I feel like it could be done this way and you have to accept that as true. Or this is the way you balance the equation in chemistry. I mean, nobody Nobody would would accept that. You know, nobody would tolerate that, I guess is a better way to say it. Nobody would say it's just crazy to think that any answer is correct, uh, that everyone could just make up their own answer. And so even in the university setting, we see that this doesn't make sense. And yet when it comes to faith, uh, when it comes to, you know, these views, you think, no, in this area, uh, you can just accept everything. In fact, you have to. You can't say that you have an exclusive belief. Uh, based on evidence or otherwise, you just can't have one because then you become intolerant. I don't think you could call a mathematician intolerant because they say there's one answer to this equation. Or you could say that you know an engineer is intolerant because there is a correct way uh, to construct the structure. So I just think that's a little strange. And we should be equipped to see where this just doesn't flow logically. Uh, but I think there is a lot here to this idea of a forced unity. I mean, if everybody would just keep their faith to themselves and nobody would actually disagree about matters of faith, we would all just say we have no faith or a very private faith. And that way society would never face the issues and the troubling questions of, well, maybe there is one that is true, or maybe there are just some that are just not true, even if we can't identify the one that is true. Okay, let me just pause there for a second and just hear some of your other comments. Catherine, you want to jump in? Wanna, there's a big debate in the medical world right now that's that's very pertinent to this that I think illustrates how, how bad this can get. Um, there's been a lot of talk lately about there are nurses who don't want to be involved in performing abortions because it goes against their religious and moral beliefs, and there's been a lot of pushback against that, saying that nurses should not have the right to not perform abortions. Like, basically, any nurse who works in a place that performs them, it should be their duty, and they shouldn't be allowed to say no to that. 
So, like, as a Christian nurse, I could potentially be in a situation where I'm forced to assist in an abortion, even though it directly violates what I believe morally. That's right. And as I was talking earlier about areas like little disciplines within this area of law, there's a whole body of law developing on whether nurses can be forced to participate in those things or lose their jobs. And I'm sorry to tell you that the prevailing view is they're losing more often than they're winning. There are a couple organizations that are trying to file suit to go the other way, but if I were to hazard a guess, 70% of the time they're losing those battles. Peter? Yeah, you know, looking at the difference between the two is interesting because the first is almost about, you know, views as these discrete ideas, and the second the second definition kind of comes more down to, you know, oh, well, now we're deciding if they're true or not. You know, now we're, um, deci- and this emotional component of offense is kind of brought in, and, you know, it kind of does move the, the dialogue from one on, like, the logic or, like, you know, cogency of an idea to just, you know, I like it or not, you know. I'm glad you're focusing on the word offense because that seems to be the supreme thing that we must avoid. Um, So the definition of intolerance looks something like this. To oppose anyone's belief or opinion, to assert any belief as exclusive, and to stand against the new tolerance. So... What Carson would say, and I think a lot of people that he quotes would agree, that the most intolerant thing you can do is stand against what people consider tolerance. Like if this is tolerance, which is accepting everybody and not offending everybody, not doing that is intolerant. Now, let me just pause and say something about the word intolerance. You know, there's a few words we throw around in culture that just kind of are trump cards. I started to talk about that last week. You know, like if you just say to somebody like, hey, quit being so judgmental. Like, you know, you might as well have just thrown hot tar on the person. Uh, and, and even before you get to feathering them on top of the hot tar, even if they get it off of themselves, the damage has been done, right? There are some words you just throw out there and say, hey, you're being judgmental, right? Uh, we said last week, like, if you, someone's talking about something, they go, you know, that's racist. Like, you spent all your time backpedaling. You can't even remember what the conversation was about, right? Because the charge has been leveled, and I think one of these words is intolerant. I think that's the word that best describes people who are going to turn around and say, you're intolerant. Uh, and we spend so much time trying to figure out, like, what does that mean? That's why I went through this exercise. Because I think the definition has changed. You might, in your mind, be thinking of the old one. Somebody says, you're intolerant. Go, I didn't say they couldn't have their view. In fact, I'm having this discussion because I disagree with their view. But they're not talking about that view of intolerance. They're talking about the second view, which is you don't accept their view as true, even though everything's true, however that works. Or you have the arrogance to stand up and disagree or to offend them in some way. Let's take an example, which some of you already started hinting at. Here's an example that Carson raises. In this case, a university banned an on-campus university Christian organization from meeting to discuss sexual ethics on the ground that the orthodox Christian view of sexual ethics is offensive to homosexuals. So imagine on a campus where you're meeting, you say, we're going to meet together to talk about sexuality. And the university says, you can't do that because it's going to offend people who are on this campus who are homosexuals. So here's how we dissect this if you look at it from the new way. The Christian view could offend someone. What is the Christian view? We're not going to go into a whole talk on sex, but like you could say, like, I believe that Sex should be within marriage. And I also believe that marriage should be between a man and a woman. You can just take those two views and go, oh, it's going to offend somebody. 
So we can't have the speech. We can't have the conversation. We can't have the dialogue. This is not a hypothetical. This happened. We can't have this dialogue. So the first ten is you say the Christian view is offensive to somebody. The second view is we defined intolerant as somebody who's offensive. You're not inclusive. So it's not a leap to say Christians are therefore intolerant. Using the transitive property of intolerance... If the Christian view offends somebody, if intolerance means offending somebody, then the Christian view must be intolerant. And that is the end of the discussion. That is how you say we can't have this discussion on campus. In fact, sooner or later, we can't have this group on campus because it's practicing intolerance. And there's that word again. You throw that word out there, you say, oh, they're intolerant. You might as well just say other dirty words that go with it, like judgmental, like racist. Oh, those people, they're homophobic. Right? When all they were going to do was have a discussion about sexual ethics and how the scriptures look at sexual ethics. Yeah, can't you just combat that word intolerant with inclusive? Hey, if I'm so intolerant, why am I not, you know, I'm including you. Like, talk to me. Like, I'm not, I have a view and you have a view. Let's talk. So, like, can you kind of just combat that with, like, I'm not intolerant. I'm asking you about what your beliefs are. Dialogue with you. I think that's what we have to learn to be able to do is to diagnose this. So look at the situation for a moment. Some of you are already bothered by it. Ben, what bothers you? So I think one of the things that we also have to combat in this, this argument is there are groups, Christian groups even, that would have a meaning about sexual ethics, but it wouldn't be that nice discussion. It would be that, like, this is wrong. You're, I mean, it would be a hatred towards homosexuality. I feel like that's where we get into trouble. We're like, so how do we distinguish the discussion type groups from the hatred type groups, even if we're using the same term? Okay, but we used to be a culture that would allow even, as I said at the beginning, a white supremacist group to have a meeting that said some pretty hideous things. And we used to say, we don't like that, we don't endorse that, but we do stand up for your right to say that. But what you're leading up to is that we've gotten to a point where we're almost going to buy into the argument of some Christians are like that white suburbans group. They should be banned. And other Christians are much more reasonable, which requires us to submit a copy of what we're going to say before they even allow us to say it, which is why they just ban it all. But I, I guess the question is, if I'm a school official who's trying to keep the peace on my campus, do I really want to allow a white supremacist group to come in and have a... Of course not. And you don't want a Christian group either because they're going to cause controversy. And after a while, though, who's at the university? Like, at some point, if you follow your logic, I agree with you, but what is the university if the only people that are allowed there are the people that hold whatever the university's ideas are? Like, we're not a university anymore. Now we're a propaganda machine where everybody's just going to follow whatever the line is. And that's exactly what's happening, by the way, is because we're stripping away the ability to say, I don't agree with what? With what the university or somebody said what society deems is acceptable. That's actually the greatest sin. Okay, other comments? Peter. I mean, I will say, and this isn't to go to the, the uh, red herring argument that we've talked about of, well, you know, Christians were on top for a while. You know, not to, not to veer into that. Um, I will say that probably for the majority of the time that we maybe had that view of, um, of tolerance, there were a lot of situations where 
you know, certain behaviors or, or groups were kind of criminalized. You know, like like sodomy was illegal in a lot of states in between like consenting adults. Like a lot of the gay rights stuff grew out of riots and arrests. And so, so all that to say, I think that maybe we've struggled to define tolerance as our view has like widened even more. You know, so it's almost as if in order for, well, not, not that, that kind of draws a straight line. But I was going to say, in order for more behaviors to be, you know, not criminal, you almost have to have this wider definition of tolerance that criminalizes exclusivity or truth claims. But I don't know that it's, it's correlation, it's not causation. Right. I mean, you may have just allowed things and said we need to allow things without saying that now we're going to exclude other things that once stood against them, right? To take away your ability to say, I still don't think it's right. I still don't know that you should be punished for it. Joseph? I, th I find it interesting that a lot, of, a lot of campus groups have been moving off campus. They've been moving, getting properties close to the campus so they don't have to deal with all this on-campus stuff and deal with being labeled intolerant or not being able to talk about certain things. There's no benefit to being on campus anymore. The Supreme Court has already ruled that if you're a Christian club and you in your bylaws state that the officers must hold Christian beliefs or Bible-based beliefs, you're a discriminatory organization and you can't get uh, any funding from the school anymore. So what's the purpose of being there? You can't actually be an official sponsored club anymore. You lose your privileges. So you, you actually not only want to move off, most of them have to move off. And that was the recent ruling that came down a couple of years ago. Uh, and again, that's, that would sound strange to some people. Like if you say, I'm in the vegetarian club, but I want to run for office on the platform that we should all eat pigs. Like you'd go, that's crazy. You shouldn't be allowed to be the president of the vegetarian club and say that you eat meat, right? But the court said you can actually, you cannot have an exclusive policy that says that the officers of a club or the members of a club must adhere to a certain kind of faith belief, even in the Christian club. Interestingly, though, when I was in college, um, while I was in the Christian groups, I was also, for other purposes, part of the University Student Pagan Association. Even though I held Christian beliefs, I was an officer in that club. So You're the reason for all this nonsense? I've been looking for a reason, and there it is. It was right here in Exodus the whole time. All right, we just lost that whole area of constitutional scrutiny. It just went out the window. All right. Let me push forward just one thing. What I want you to do is look at this example for a moment. What if Christians complained that allowing the LGTB club on campus was offensive to them? Forget Ben's point for a moment about, well, even we draw distinctions between, you know, Christians that are just out there and crazy, which is dangerous, by the way. When we start, when we start turning on our own brothers, like, we're helping. Uh, we're helping to out some of this same thing. We're helping to uh, enforce the fact that Christians are intolerant when you know, even if they have crazy views, and I've called them out on it, uh, I'm not calling it out to stop them as opposed to have the discussion about it. But let's just put that aside for a moment. What would happen if your Christian club on campus went to the president of the university or went to the dean of students and said, you know what, those people offend me and I want them off the campus. I don't want them to be able to speak about their sexual ethics because I think it's offensive to me. Do you think there's a chance that you're going to stop that discussion? I say no, and that's what my point was earlier, is because as a group of people, we've decided that that is okay, to that belief system and idea is okay. It, it's not offensive because they've been disenfranchised. But our group is, you know, infringing on other people's rights to have a truth because being, like you said, it's really about being exclusive because our, certain things about being a Christian calls for being exclusive in terms of there is a truth. That's not okay. 
So yeah, so in that case, it, that group probably would be able to meet and they would say that the Christians, sorry, you know. But in this example, it's not just the exclusivity. I mean, the cited reason was that the Christian Orthodox view on sexuality is offensive. It comes to the definition of, of offensive and intolerance, right? Because if, if you're living, I mean, if, you're, if you lived in a total Christian society, and or just amongst this, right? If I say, I believe in God, no one, probably no one here is going to think like that's crazy. But if I went to like an atheist and said I believe in God, that might be offensive. Okay. So it depends on the group. So at a macro level, the society, and then the definition of what's intolerant. And in my opinion, what's intolerant is being exclusive and infringing on someone else's right to be right. <laughs> okay, Morgan? This would not be something, even I know, like cringe to think about even Christians trying to do this because you would just lose it from, from the campus. And you, would, you would be ostracized into death. Like, I mean, especially as something, we have our club rushes, every, you know, the LGBT, it always seems like they're right across the way from us, and there's kind of this funny, wonderful stare down <laughs> to each other. But that would be like the worst thing. I mean, I would stifle any of my kids who said anything not well, just because it would just be the death. This is the unpardonable sin on a campus. Okay, Andrew? Well, if you talk about intolerance, they come to you with that claim, aren't they themselves? That's what I'm trying to get you to at least see. That's all I'm trying to do, right? So, I mean, you're on to that part. They don't see it that way, then you're six steps behind the uh, You know what? I don't think they see it that way, and I'm going to explain in a moment why. But the, but the point is, yes, I do believe it's intolerant, but at the same time, I think where Chris was going was, we've already, we, we have to talk about who we are, have already decided what's in and what's out. This is unpardonable. Right? Going this way, comments? Yeah, Ben. Um, John, I wonder if you could comment on, I mean, it seems like a lot of the arguments against uh, Christianity or the Christian symbol of the culture is the separation of church and state. And I feel like this argument wouldn't stand because, you know, the LGTB wouldn't be considered necessarily a religious organization. Whereas if they complain about the Christian club, it, at least the argument can be made that, like, that's what's so great about stigma is it goes far beyond legislation and also goes far beyond judicial decision uh, what you have is you can have a socially regulated environment that has no law in place that's why we talked last week about stigma in that way so for example there's a stigma that we all recycle even though in most places there is actually no recycling laws but most of us, just out of voluntary fear that our friends might find us throwing something into the trash can, walk around like morons at most parties going, you guys recycle, you guys recycle, right? Rather than just normally at home, you just kind of toss it. We do what I call the recycle dance, you know, um, where you have to at least say it three times before you shove it under a couch or something, you know? <laughs> You haven't thrown it away. You haven't committed. It's still non-committal at that point. Do you see, I think a lot of this is not, I mean, you're looking at separation of church and state, which is not even truly in the Constitution, actually, but is a constitutional principle that we've adopted, and we're looking at that. But in this case, yeah, this is really all about a fence, which is not legislated. And that's what makes it so interesting is that we have something that universities and other organizations act on every day but they act on voluntarily. But I mean, it seems like they use that argument. 
I've heard that so many times, like separation of church and state. Like even if it was a decision they were already going to make, like they use that to kind of see we're so okay. Right. Right. And I, and I think it's because that one, everyone just kind of, like, if you throw that down, everybody goes, oh, yeah, we have to have that. And I actually think if you think critically about it, like you just did, you'd say, actually, this isn't even a religious issue. But I can throw that down and everybody will just say, oh, yeah, we need to separate church and state. So that's what's going on here without actually thinking critically. I think that's a ruse when you do that. I want to bring back a slide some of you have never seen, some of you haven't seen in a while. A while back in our series on church and society, we were talking about what are the key influencers in society. Whenever we talk about Christians wanting to change the world, you might remember, we said, well, for them to change the world, they'd have to affect those institutions in culture that actually affect the culture. What we listed at the time were the ones that you see here, because we think of culture as only government, but it's not. We said that there are many influencers in culture. These institutions, the church, nonprofits, academia, the arts and media, business, and then politics and government. But what we also pointed out is how many of these do Christians actually occupy any real positions in, any influential positions? To break it down a little bit, what we looked at was this. When you look at the key influences in society, for example, academic think tanks, elite universities, law schools, opinion magazines, journals, top-tier colleges, journalism, or in media like the visual arts, literature, poetry, classical music, theater, dance, public television, public radio, museums, film, television, you name it. It goes all the way down the list. Where are the Christians? Well, I actually kind of told you, because I highlighted them in yellow for you. Uh, they're in seminaries and divinity schools, which are kind of lower on the influencer list. They're in practical journalism, like journalism that affects actually maybe the, the issue you're in, like in ministry or wherever you're at. They're, of course, in churches and places of worship, and they're in Christian schools. But look, they rank kind of near the bottom in terms of influences if you rank these in terms of their order. Why am I bringing this slide back to you? Because what I'm trying to point out is these are the influencers that started or enforce the stigmas that we have. Last week, I think it was Chris who said, well, who started this or who's behind this? I'm not trying to make a guy behind a curtain with a lever. There's not a meeting that's going on somewhere in a basement. I'm not trying to go there. I'm not trying to be a conspiracy theorist at all. What I'm saying, though, is if you look at the case law itself, you'll see that Christians first, this is from J.D. Hunter, who we used his book, to show that Christians are nowhere in the key influencer positions. That was his theory, and I believe it's definitely true. But the second part is... They're not allowed in these places. We had a discussion last week among some people who experienced that in academia about how, and you saw a couple cases I read last week, like if you're a Christian or you've, you're found out to be a Christian in some of these more elite places, you're not getting the job. You're not getting in. I mean, last week we looked at the case where the guy was going to be the director of the observatory at the University of Kentucky. I mean, you know, amazing. Kentucky has a university, right? I mean, how amazing is that? But they wouldn't let the guy in because he was a Christian? I'm not even sure how that relates to the job. You think, oh, because you're a Christian, you don't believe those stars are older than 6,000 years old that are hung in the heavens, so why would you be the director of the observatory? I don't even know what that would be about. But there are so many cases in the line of cases about education that as soon as you find out you're a Christian, you're not allowed in. So what I'm saying is, how are these rules written for our society about what we tolerate and what we don't? They're written by these organizations. And we're not in most of them. 
So that's one of the reasons that it's so easy to label us that way. Catherine. So are you saying that Christians need to be famous and influential and powerful by these world standards in order to have an impact? No. Uh, in our series on that, what I did say is that we won't change the world unless we have those things. But I don't think we're called to change the world. I think we're called to change the people around us so that most Christians think big. Like, we're going to change the world. No, you'd have to run these things to change the world. But I don't even think Jesus called us that. He called us to change, like, our neighbor and the people in our lives. So if Christians, and that's why on Wednesday nights when we're talking with Morgan about this topic, the reason we're focusing on that is because you could hear somebody say, like, we're going to change the world. And I think, I agree with Hunter, who's done a lot of research on this, that most Christians are just don't even know what they're talking about. Because they, you, they don't understand the influences of culture that you would have to change and how we are not anywhere near them. But that doesn't mean that Christians don't have anything to do in the world. They have something way more important to do than change the world. Right? They have so much more to do. And it begins in those personal relationships. And that's why if we get our eyes off the goal. But now what am I saying in this series? I'm saying that because we're not in those places, then the stigma is being set by those people. I definitely agree. Um, I mean, I, I recently finished a book called The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. And the scandal is that we aren't, as Christians, immersing ourselves enough intentionally into the, God's creation, the subjects of our everyday life. Like instead, we're so busy just kind of thinking about spiritual things that we can't really ever be present in the world and have intellectual understanding of biology, like why do plants grow, and to dedicate to so they know a lot about these subjects. I heard somebody summarize that book by saying the scandal of the evangelical mind is that the evangelical has no mind. <laughs> right? That's the summary of the book, right? Okay. <laughs> so if you haven't read the book, I just read it for you. Morgan. Well, one of the problems, though, is I mean, I know enough subbing to know, especially in Sarah, that there are a load of Christian teachers in high schools now because of APU and you know, sending people out. But I'll tell you, it's very hard, even, you know, and a lot of them are saying, hey, I want to make a difference in the secular world. Now, let's just pretend public education is higher on that list. It's very difficult. You can't bring your Christianity into the classroom. I mean, you can have a Bible on your desk, you can do things, but you can't openly. So, so even for those who are trying to do that and who do have the knowledge in science or whatever else, you can't talk about creed. And if you're a Christian and you teach biology, you are not allowed to even promote the idea that God maybe started things off. I'm not saying Christians aren't represented in many places. You could have a thousand Christian teachers in a school district. They're not the influencer. Why? Because the influencer of can you teach creation or evolution is it's the Supreme Court, right? It's the school district, and they're not represented there. They're not represented at these places. You get to the think tanks, the elite universities, the schools of public policy, the law schools, the media, television, you might start to change the stigma. You might start to go the other way, but we're, we're so not represented that you could have you got thousands of, of Christians in business and all these places, but they're not at the place where the decision is made. And I still maintain they're kept out. Going this way, we're going to take the last comments. Go ahead, Chris. Couldn't it just be that it's an outcome that it's bad business to have disagreement, right? I mean, like, what drives most of the world these days? Money, right? So arts and media is selling stuff. Businesses are selling things. Academia is preparing you to sell stuff. Politics and government regulate the selling of stuff. You know, nonprofits go to take a, a cause, and then there's the church, right? So, like, the church is 
so clear many times, although heavily debated, on what it means to like have you know, <laughs> two masters in your life, like money or God. And I wonder if maybe that's more of the reason, not so much it's, it's labeled intolerant, but it's really just because the church causes a clank in the whole machine of business of, hey, you know, if we have all these people that disagree, or if I disagree with them, they may not buy my product, or they may not listen. But the church is the majority of people. That's what's crazy. That theory could make sense if the church was a clanky minority. Why would you intentionally put on television things that offend, like, the majority of Christians? Like, that would be bad business. That would turn them away from watching your show or seeing the commercials. Why would you do those things? And the reason is because you live, I think, I really do believe that the people at the top live in a, a bubble of their own. We make Christians in a bubble, but they live in their own bubble, and they think everybody thinks the way they do or should. And their job is to drive those beliefs and change everybody's opinion. But from a business perspective, if I can convince you that I'm right, then I can sell you something better than if I have to figure out what you think, right? So if I can tell you what to think, then I can tell you how to buy. Business is the most democratic of these, so it's hard to make that analogy. The places where this happens the most is in academia, then the media, then politics and government, and then nonprofits. And then business, and then the church, if you were going to look at that in order. The place where all of this happens, if you're going to pinpoint, it would be academia and the media. If you take those two, you're going to win anyway. But also having politics and government follow along with nonprofits, you've got a lock. That's what drives it. That's who's doing it. Going this way, last comments? Yes. Okay, so for example, in Redlands, there's a school district. And a couple of months ago, um, they hired an openly homosexual uh, principal of the school. And like over, I think, like 250 parents pulled their kids out of the school and like moved them to another school. And it was so ridiculous that they fired the guy and they hired a different person because it was just way outlandish that like all those kids would migrate because all these Christians essentially stood up saying like, we don't want our like elementary school like student necessarily influenced by, you know, whatever, um, the principal. And so because of that, I'm wondering like, obviously I don't think that the church is necessarily called to have people in these like places of power, I don't think that that's our like mission as a church. Um, but what would your comment, I guess, be on us being conscientious, I guess, like consumers of like issues? And do you think that like we could have, I guess, a more like grassroots thing? So like, if we just stopped watching like arts and media that we didn't agree with, or like stop going to these different schools, like, do you think that that would be? like absolutely detrimental because it would just pigeonhole us even more into our little Christian communities? Or do you think that it would have like enough sway? Like, do you think that Christian convictions are deep enough? Or do you think that they're far too shallow? First, I think they're too shallow for us to really do something that's in the interest of what we need to do as opposed to just our own comfort and self-interest. But the part where I'm going to disappoint you is I'm going to say that's actually what this series is going to end with, is what then do we do? What is our response going to be? Because it's not easy. What you just described is a place where if the media is covering that event, they're going to paint all of those people as being intolerant. Why? Because somebody who's helpless, nice person, who just people disagree with came there, and everybody overreacted and took their people out. Did they overreact? I don't know. I mean, I can't judge what all those people should or shouldn't do, but the fact that they acted, which used to be just, hey, my right to do, now becomes painted as an intolerant action is going to get a lot of media attention. Why? Because the people who have the access to that think a certain way. They're looking for those examples. Here's what this all leads to. I'm just going to read you a few more and we're done. Christians are socially discredited, causing a pressure to conform to the norm 
or at least avoid deviating from that norm. Some of us go underground, let's just be honest. Or some of us start to actually, you know, point fingers at our own brothers and sisters, you know, trying to create a big separation, like, you're rooted for the rest of us, shut up, right? <laughs> because we feel the pressure. Because they embarrass us. Why? Because of the stigma. That's dangerous. Secularization, which we're going to be talking about in coming weeks, it's an effort to transform society from close identification with religious values and religious institutions towards non-religious values and secular institutions. There's a myth out there. When everything's secular, it's neutral. That way nobody has their thing. It has this effect. You start to develop a belief in dualism, and I think a lot of Christians have this. Think to yourself, do you? Where your public lives are devoid of religious expressions and all your religious beliefs are kept private. Now, maybe not if you go to APU and you're in this place where you're rewarded for being spiritual, but I mean when you step off this campus and you graduate and you're gone. Will you face that pressure? Do you now? Where you feel that pressure to like live a public life of kind of one thing and keep your religion to yourself? Is that anything like what the gospel's supposed to be? Is that what we're commanded to do as Christians? I mean, that's strange. We have to come back and talk about secularization, which is what we're going to do. Ray? Um, I guess just a quick question is like, so if you're a Christian person about to look for work and you're offered a position at a Christian institution and a secular institution, morally and ethically and within Christianity, which one should you take? Wow, that's kind of, I mean, I, I would have to sit and talk to you about those things. But I would say there's a part of me that wants to see us live in the world and to take our values there. Because that was what the gospel mandate was supposed to be. There's a pressure as part of this secularization for us to keep our faith private and live in private communities. Um, and I don't know that's going to help, right? I, I think that the people who are trying to impose this kind of new type of tolerance and label us as intolerance, they come out ahead when we withdraw and retreat into our own little communes and ghettos. That being said, there may be reasons that you still want to do it. You know, I mean, if you feel like you're going to feel the stigma and you're never going to be able to do it, that's different. Here's some more. Just read these and we're done. A graduate student in counseling, talking about tolerance here, at Augusta State University, Augusta, so we're not anywhere in the Ninth Circuit, was asked to complete a remediation plan that included diversity training and a recommendation to attend the Augusta Gay Pride Parade. Why was she supposed to do this? Because according to the university, her Christian beliefs did not align with the department's professional guidelines. So as a result, you either go to the Gay Pride Parade and write something about how you're going to remediate your views, or you cannot continue in the program. Poway High School had a special day to, to commemorate homosexuality. A Christian student who wore a t-shirt that had an opposing view and that mentioned God was banned from wearing the t-shirt. Very much like our example. The district court ruled that the student's speech was not protected, and of course the Ninth Circuit affirmed. As students at St. John's Elementary School were planning to sing a country song, country music, you know, it's close to God right there. The country music song was called In God We Still Trust. Never mind that In God We Trust is all over our money and all over all sorts of stuff. They were going to sing In God We Still Trust for a third grade performance. The song made references to the Pledge of Allegiance and the nation still trusting in God. A student or parents filed suit against the school arguing that it was a violation of the Establishment Clause. The federal district court agreed and granted an injunction against singing the song. In Missouri State University, a student there was to draft and sign a letter to support same-sex adoptions and send it to the state legislature. That was the class assignment. 
When she refused because of her Christian beliefs, she was forced to sign a contract stating that her beliefs would align to the social work department's ideological standards. She filed suit. Finally, the university cleared her record and revoked the teaching privileges of the professor who asked her to do that. So sometimes it goes the other way. This high school planned a diversity day in order to showcase the viewpoints of various religious groups, various sexual orientations, and various nationalities, but stated that Christian groups and former homosexuals would be excluded. <laughs> it took a legal organization to intervene so that you could instate the right of Christians to participate, and the school responded by canceling the event entirely, rather than have the Christians included. In Massachusetts, an elementary school as part of a class project asked students to bring books to class about their Christmas traditions. A second grader brought a book called The First Christmas, but her teacher stopped her from reading it because it was religious. A lawsuit was filed just to get her First Amendment rights and reinstated so that she could bring the book to class and share it. A school teacher threw away two students' Truth for Youth Bibles and took the students to the principal's office where she threatened to call child protective services on their parents for permitting them to bring their Bibles. Isn't that crazy? Just because they brought a Bible to school. In another case involving elementary school students that I thought was funny, a kid brought two Bibles to his friends at school, just two of them, and he gave them to the students, and the teacher stopped him and said, if you're not going to bring Bibles for the whole class, you can't bring those Bibles for those two. The next day, he brought Bibles for the whole class... And the teacher banned him from, from passing them out, <laughs> saying that now it violated the separation of church and state. I think I would summarize it this way. I want your eyes to be open to the fact that there is an increasing stigma against anything related to Christianity. Yes, it's true. It is also there to other religions, but less so. We are front and center we have the largest target on our back. And I want you to at least see how the tolerance argument works. And I want you to hear some of these cases so you don't think it's some isolated incident. I'm going to keep reading some of these just so you know that this is happening. What's your response? Well, that's what we're going to be talking about. Here's where we're going. Do we need to speak out at all? Like, why? Why don't we just shut up? Aren't our actions good enough? Haven't we done enough harm in speaking publicly? Uh, Morgan is going to be talking about, do we need to speak? We're going to say, isn't secularization a neutral stance? Like, isn't that neutral? Like, maybe if just everybody was secular and everybody kept their religions themselves, that would be even better. And finally, how do we live as Christ followers in an increasingly pluralistic and secular society? How are we going to do it? That is where the series goes and ends. Uh, so far, you guys seem like you're enjoying it from your comments, so we'll keep going. Let's pray and ask God to bless this time that we have. Lord, I'm mindful that your efforts do not need our assistance, that you have been moving through the world and that your plan is being accomplished whether we're participating or not. But you invite us into your plan. You invite us and you give us the dignity of work, the dignity of partnering with you. You actually love us enough not just to save us and to bring us into your family, but also, Lord, to give us something to do that is part of what you care about. So, Lord, I pray first asking that if there's any part of this that you don't care about, that you'd bring it up in our discussions. And also remind us that, Lord, we should remain hopeful. We should be dancing because of the things that you've done, regardless of what we see around us. But you have also asked us, Lord, to be 
wise and to be aware. And Lord, just so that we might help to have conversations with others where we can deconstruct some of the lies that are being told by our very society. So let this series be that, Lord. Let it be something to open our eyes, something to equip us, so that we might do the work of your gospel even more effectively, knowing that you have it covered no matter what. We pray this in your name. Amen.